Well, you know, if I were to be a prophet and say, I wonder how long Christian education has in Australia to run, unfettered from high government intervention on these issues, uh, I'd say it's less time than we think. Welcome to the Christian Education Podcast. My name's Paul Matthews, and today it is a real treat to be able to bring you this discussion with Stephen McAlpine. Now, I've actually wanted to talk to Steve ever since I started this podcast because I believe he possesses a very real insight into Australian culture. You know, many people think a prophet is someone who can tell the future. But if you look at the scriptures, we often see that a prophet is someone who can tell the present. They can look at a culture and actually see what's going on. And that's something Steve does really well. Our discussion today revolves around two key themes. Firstly, What's the place of Christianity in our contemporary Australian culture and how might that have changed over the last few decades? Secondly, we push that idea into some corners and look at what that might mean for Christian education. I actually first met Steve at a nationwide Christian education conference in South Australia. Uh, it was the morning of his keynote address and we actually ended up going for a run together before breakfast. I was really excited about this run because I thought it would be a great chance to pick his brain because I had a few burning questions at the time. Well, let me assure you, he's much faster than I realised. The only thing that ended up burning on that run was my legs. Steve does a lot of things well, but realising he's putting his running partner to the sword is not one of them. All I managed to get from that run was a bit of a pulverised ego, actually. But safe to say, his keynote address later that day was fantastic. Now, as always... I want you to know that before Stephen and I hit record, we prayed for you. We prayed that you would be built up and edified by this discussion and that God in his mercy would use this discussion to further the cause of Christian education. Well, Stephen McAlpine, welcome to the Christian Education Podcast. Good to be with you. Now, it's, it's really hard to define you, mate. You're a tough bloke to nail down. I've been listening to some of your interviews recently. I've heard you described as an ex-journo, an ex-journalist, an ex-pastor, uh, a semi-professional athlete, and even an influential blogger and public theologian. How exactly would you describe what you do? Yeah, I, I'm the Scarlet Pimpernel, obviously. Um, <laughs> they seek me here, they seek me there. I think I, I started off life... Uh, in ministry roles, uh, you know, in my mid-twenties working in churches. And I think some of the gifts that I've had in writing and um, things like that have come to the fore over the last few years. So uh, one of the things I discovered is that I can do the church-based ministry stuff, but there are areas in it that I probably am not that good at. And there are areas that I am good at in areas of helping young pastors and coaching and thinking through the big issues of life that are good for the church, not just a church. And so my life the last few years has been lived between helping a church in a local setting and helping the church through writing and thinking and speaking and uh, creating content, I think, in the midst of the cultural change. So part of my life is on the ground, uh, helping a local church, though I'm not doing that at the, quite at the moment, and then part of it's 30,000 feet. So it's, my life is lived between in the trees of ministry and above the forest in the helicopter. That, that's how I'd describe myself. That's probably the creative way to, to describe it. <laughs> well, I guess the good thing about being in the helicopter at 30,000 feet is you get a pretty good idea of what's going on down on the ground. 
Now, we're going to talk about education today. This is the Christian Education Podcast. But before we do that, I thought it would be good just to discuss Christianity more broadly. So we want to look at Christianity in our society. Uh, and it's going to seem like I'm changing the topic now, but I'm really not. Uh, you've just launched a new podcast. Am I right, Steve? That's right. Yeah, DeLorean philosophy. Looking at, um, well, the DeLorean car from Back to the Future. I'm trying to extrapolate what's the situation now, a contemporary cultural event, that we can look forward say, where is this taking us? What are the good things about it? But what, are, what are the risks? And how does Christianity inform where the future is headed as far as... Uh, you know, Western culture in particular is concerned. So that's what it, really what I'm looking at with that. I've listened to the first few episodes and I can highly recommend that to anyone listening to this. Now, the reason I raise that is because I want to flog that DeLorean. I want to bring it over to this podcast. And instead of going forward, I actually want to go back. So as we punch in the date, I want to go half a century back with you, Steve. Uh, yep. And as we go 50 years back, half a century back, I want to look at What's the perception and the place of Christianity in Australia 50 years ago, and how actually might that differ to where we are now? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it will, uh, it will raise some issues about Christian education as we talk, as I think you're probably aware. 50 years ago, Christianity in Australia, um, and in the, around the West, but particularly in Australia, was seen as um, it, was, it was a fading away but kind of docile kind of organisation that was for um, older ladies and vicars. And, uh, and young kids would go to, perhaps go to Sunday school, uh, and that was about it, because their parents would get a Sunday morning off. Because they, they had to give them a moral framework somewhere, and so the church would do it, and they could go to youth group and things like that. And I grew up in Australia at that, I was just arriving in Australia at the age of five or six, so that's 50 years ago, and we were a very few people who went to a, a church on a regular basis. But it was, it was a docile relationship between the church and the state, I think, and the average punter. Um, it was a bit lame to go to church, uh, but the framework of Christianity still kept, uh, was, was our framework. We still did the Lord's Prayer at school. Uh, we still had, at, at a public uh, school, we actually said the Lord's Prayer every week and we did other things that were vaguely religious so the, the trappings of religion um, and it was the Christian religion if you weren't um, uh, Christian you were not Christian in a very Christian way so the pole star of our moral framework whether uh, and you could determine how far away you were from that pole star by how your life was lived was Christianity and uh, Christians were sort of a bit weak, and they were a part of what we did in our culture, but they weren't particularly, um, it wasn't particularly attractive option, I think, to most people. And that's funny because I like what you said, they were non-Christian in a very Christian way. Uh, that reminds me of Tom Holland's book, and I'm sure you've read it, Dominion, where he basically looks out at Western culture right now and says, you're all Christians. Now, he himself, not being a Christian, he says, you might not be, uh, you might not be calling on Jesus as your Lord, but you, all, all the, the way that you view the world, your entire makeup is very Christian, down to the core, down to the bones. So we see 50 years ago, we've almost got a, I forget the name of the priest. It's, an, it's in The Simpsons. He was a bit of a nobody. You had Ned Flanders. He was a bit of a joke. And that was, it seems to be the sort of Christianity as we pop back 50 years in the DeLorean, we're encountering. How is that changing from where we find ourselves today? How has the ground underneath us shifted? 
Oh, the ground shifted a lot, and that's is the Reverend Lovejoy, by the way. So uh, in the Simpsons, uh, uh, a greatly ironic title for him, which probably says what people thought that the Christians are a bit morose and a bit, you know, killers of joy uh, and wowzers. But nowadays. Christianity is not seen as part of the solution that we all can be involved in with Christianity somehow if you want to be. It's seen as part of the problem to a, a, a vision of human flourishing that's come adrift from Christianity. And Tom Holland's right. Um, people are even anti-Christian in a very Christian way. They, they've got a moral framework that is full of saints and sinners. Uh, it's full of, uh, it's got its priests and its its outcasts. It's got its vision of a wonderful world that's coming soon and very soon. Uh, it's got a once I was blind but now I see kind of gospel framework of moral framework. It takes all the categories of Christianity and kind of beats Christianity over the head with them. And it, it sees Christianity not simply as uh, an annoyance at the side of the culture but as something that's actually hostile to a good vision of human flourishing. And this is why I'd say that uh, in New York, where Tim Keller talks about in New York in the 80s and early 90s, Christianity uh, that he said, you know, he's planted Redeemer Presbyterian Church. It, it, had a, it was kind of mocked by the New York Times that he was doing that. The New York Times does not look at evangelical Christianity today in a mockery way. It looks at it as a threat to the social order. Now, there's some issues in the U.S. that are <laughs> particular to the U.S. and how evangelicalism has played out. But I think we get the blowback of that in the rest of the world. So if, I, if someone finds out I'm an evangelical Christian in Australia and they're not a Christian at all, their automatic assumption is you're like that in the people in America, that there's a, you're trying to take over the government. And they're going, how did that happen? Uh, so Christianity is seen as a threat to the social order and its, its, its perspective is seen as uh, life-denying and doing violence to people's autonomy. Those are key issues in our culture, and Carl Truman talks about this as well in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. So Christianity has moved from being uh, part of the solution to part of the problem, and from the doing good kind of people to the, you're probably doing some bad that you can't make up for by smiling nicely at us and doing funky church services. Now, of course, it's anachronistic to say that there's ever been any fully static period of time on Earth. Culture, in some ways, is always a bit of a moving target. So it's, it's a fallacy to say that there were some glory days in yonder years, uh, but we've moved away from that now because, as I said, moving target across the board. But would it be safe to say, Steve, that the change that we've seen in the last 50 years has actually been more rapid than we would expect to see societies change in general? Yes, and that's a seismic uh, change, and technology has, has pushed that. And um, uh, a global understanding of who we are has pushed things so that something, I would say, we're all Manhattan now, you know, if we're all Manhattan. The ideas that were f formed in Manhattan that are, or even in the universities of our world, they get to us very quickly. It used to take a while to filter through. But the changes around the world since the globalisation move, since the rise of the baby boomers and the influence that the baby boomers brought in a in an increasingly post-Christian world, especially in the West, that has pushed the change really quickly. So we're seeing a ramping up of not just technology, but the ideas that technology pushes and also the uh, changes philosophically that we're going through culturally as well. So it, there was a certain 
slowness and not static but things move slowly and then they ramped up and then they have periods of extreme speed and then something slows down and you think oh that's slowed down for a bit then something else happens so it feels like people thought history would be like a cable car you're going in this sort of progressive secular uh, future and it's more like a roller coaster and uh, but that tells you that things change quickly secularism's narrative is that Christianity eventually will get sort of knocked to the canvas and religion will be sloughed off to the, the side. But the world is more religious than it was 50 years ago. In a uh, More people uh, think religiously and talk about religion in a, in a, very, in, in a, in a way that's uh, surprising us, I think. We wouldn't have expected Parliament to be talking about religious issues as much as they do, but they are. That's one of the things that I love about reading your writing and listening to your speaking, Steve, is that you're able to canvas society and understand what's going on. You're able to take a 30,000 foot view and see actually what's happening. Many people think that, uh, I, I like to talk to you, um, talk about you rather, to my friends as somewhat of a prophet. Uh, people often say that prophets are those who can tell the future. But many times when you look at the scriptures, a prophet's actually someone who's telling the present. They're actually looking around and saying, this guys, this is what is going on. You, you think it might be this other thing, but these are the true spiritual uh, causes. These are the true societal changes that are going on. And that's something you do really well as you see the present. Not every Christian is able to do that. So there might be people who are working in an old paradigm. They're still in that sort of Ned Flanders, Reverend Lovejoy space, yet the ground underneath them has shifted. These tectonic plates have moved. And so their, their paradigm is actually no longer effective. So what is going to prevent us if we're working from an old paradigm, the sort of Christianity and culture you grew up with as a kid, how are we going to get things wrong when we then try and engage with our present culture? Well, one of the things I think we do is that we say, uh, we'll let you set the rules of engagement and then we'll play the game with your rules. And I think we saw that in the recent Essendon saga uh, where uh, CEO Andrew Thorburn had to... Uh, resign his position because he belonged to a church where the ideas that were on the sermons were anathema to the popular culture. So what we've said is if we can show ourselves sensible and we can show ourselves as part of what the culture is doing, you'll co-opt us and we can come for the ride and we can be the state chaplain, so to speak. And suddenly uh, we realise we're not. And in my book, Being the Bad Guys, the, the whole paradigm is taken from the discombobulation of the main character in the movie Falling Down, where he starts the day as the good guy, and by the end of the day, he realises he's the bad guy, and he says, I'm the bad guy? How did that happen? And it happened slowly at one level, but it happened quickly for Christians as well, uh, if we think about it, that Christians became aware that their ideas weren't just uh, wrong, but the framework was that they were immoral ideas, that they were uh, not life-affirming ideas, that they were hostile ideas to where the culture is going. And so the worst thing to do is to say, let, sh let us show you how sensible we are. Let us show you how we fit where the world's going at the moment. I, I would say that the counterintuitive move, but the right one, is to flip that on its head and say, we are nothing like you. Our value framework is completely different. You see the world in a materialist way, like a sealed-off uh, bubble as if nothing comes in and nothing goes out but we believe in a transcendent worldview that's where the world's porous there's a heaven above there's a hell below there's an earth in the middle and they leak and uh you know the fact that a christian would uh, nothing is more outrageous 
that a Christian about what a Christian believes than the fact that one day Jesus is going to return. You can have all the crazy, you know, you could have a completely different view to your work colleagues around sexuality, but that's not the main game. The main game is that you believe one day the sky is going to rip open and the poorest universe will reveal itself and Jesus will return. And that's like wacko. That'll get you marched out of the building with your cardboard box and your security key handed in. If people realise the implications of that, that that's what you believe. So part of our effective engagement with culture as, as Christians more broadly is actually emphasising the strangeness of the Christian religion. I uh, once listened to a biblical theologian, a guy called James B. Jordan, if memory serves, and he would talk about the deep weird, the deep weird, and he would say scripture is full of the deep weird. And sometimes in our tripping over ourselves to appear intellectually palatable to the culture around us, we will, we will minimise uh, we'll brush to the side the deep weird, but what you're saying is it's actually a good idea to bring those differences front and centre and, and not accentuate them unnecessarily, but just say, hey, they're here, they're part of our faith. We believe some things that are very, very different to the things that you believe. Well, Peter Orr and Rory Shiner have a new book called The World Next Door, which invites, uh, which is a riff on James Sire's book, The Universe Next Door, talking about the belief systems of your neighbours. And they're saying, no, come and look at the world next door to you. It's an invitation to secular people to look at Christianity. And they do it through the lens of the creed, the Apostles' Creed. And the, the key issue there, though, is that they don't start with an intellectual line-by-line -line unpacking of the historical significance of the creed. They start with Jesus believed in angels and demons <laughs> and, uh, and starts with a ghost story, so to speak, because they realised in line with Francis Schaeffer, who also did the same thing. When Schaeffer was working in the 60s, he started off his talks about talking about angels because he, he realised that if he couldn't get people to believe that there was a world beyond them, that there was a framework of how the world was put together that was different to the secular frame, uh, the rest of Christianity would just slide off the side like Teflon. Now, that's not to say that Christianity is coming in anti-intellectually, or the only weird thing doing the rounds. Because I would say to people, why is my weird any more weird than your weird? Like, some of the stuff I hear around the, the gender issues in particular are going, well, isn't that interesting? That if you objectively look at it, if you'd said to psychiatrists 60 years ago, we're going to reach a stage where people will effectively say that I was born in the wrong body. Uh, a dualistic understanding of what a human being is. And all of science has pushed a materialist view of humans and a integrated, you're a bunch of meat and synapses that we can work with. And suddenly you've got this, this disembodiment uh, where my psychological self is my true self and my physical self is, has to line up to respond to it. And that's, that idea is actually less intellectually robust than anything Christianity offers, even though Christianity is of a, you know, a hyper-weird level. But I say lean into the weird. And one of the reasons I'm saying that is because people are looking around for something. They are absolutely caught in the headlights of where the culture is headed. And Christianity has a meaning and purpose agenda and answer that is well ahead of anything else that's been offered. If you do you is all you've got, uh, then as Taylor Swift said at... New York University recently, she gave the graduation address and her primary statement to university students at one of the top universities in the world was, um, you're on your own, it's terrifying, 
and it's great at the same time, but you're really run by your emotions and how you feel. And I mean, if that's what you're saying to university students, where's the intellectual clout to that? That's, what, that's the difference, I think. Well, I expected a wide range of different quotes from you, Steve. I did not expect Taylor Swift, but there you go, you've, you've surprised me again. She's a people's poet, there she go. Look, uh, people think like Taylor Swift writes and, and sings. Uh, there's no way around that. The average young woman looks at a Taylor Swift song and says, that's my life. If that were not the case, she wouldn't sell millions and millions of records. People identify with the way she looks at the world in a way that is, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's intense and it, it, it mirrors how they feel about where the world's going, how the relationships work and what matters in the world. New York University would not get her in to be the graduation, you know, commencement speech uh, star if they didn't believe that people tapped into her narrative of how, the life, of how life works. I'm really glad you mentioned young people there because I want to now come into our core business and discuss education for a moment. Now, a brief analysis of the facts leads us to see that the average school teacher is about 46 years old. So I'm teaching in a high school, my context, and we'll say the average high school student is about 16 years old. So all of a sudden, we got a 30-year difference between a teacher and student. Now, I always think that teaching in some ways is like cross-cultural mission because some of the stuff that these young um, people are coming out with, I have no idea where it came from or what it means. But there's a sense in which we've been talking about the rapid change in society. If you've been operating with a certain cross-cultural mission philosophy and you've been operating in that, in that vein for maybe the last 20 years of your career, the things that you used to do with students that landed really well, the conversations you used to have, might have stopped making sense in the meantime to the students. And that's because the culture that you're going cross-culture to has changed so rapidly. So my question to you here is, as educators, as Christian teachers in a Christian school, with on average a 30 year, that's a generation and a half difference between us and the students, how can we actually accommodate or make allowance for this difference as educators? Well, I think that's a, a, you know, such a good point. It's a hard one to accommodate given that uh, culture seems to shift every five years. It's, it's half generations now, you know, and quarter generations. And I'm uh, 55 and I, I'm astonished. And so here, here's the point. My 14-year-old my son had heard of Andrew Tate and I hadn't until he got cancelled. And then I go, have to backfill the story. Who is this guy and why is he influencing young men at such a, a stage? A couple of things, I, you know, I, I help Christian schools figure out some of the stuff around sexuality and gender. And one of the things you have to do as a Christian teacher is somewhere along the line, in, or in Christian schools, you've got to have people in your, not everyone has to be it, but you've got to have people who are actually paid not to do nothing, but to take a step back and watch what's going on. You need your own prophets and seers in your school system who can then give people... Uh, a framework for give the, those 46-year-old teachers who are still sort of uh, listening to Green Day um, a little bit of uh, advice as to here's where things are going. Now, I don't think you have to acquiesce to everything that a student wishes for because I think that the primary thing that, a, a, that young people will look to in their teachers is that they think their teachers cared for them and respected them. But even a 46-year-old teacher started life where... In, in teaching where 
students had a little bit of respect for the teachers because of the institution. And that's gone by the wayside. And so uh, students realise that teachers are well behind them in the technological game and technology is the power of the day. And if you're up with the technology and you're up with the humour of the technology and the way it works and the way it uh, creates things, you are the powerful person in the relationship, regardless of who the teacher is. And I think if schools can tap into having some teaching staff who are seers to the culture, they can help work along. Because you don't have time as a 46-year-old teacher to be reading absolutely everything. You've got, if you're 46 and you're a teacher, there's an odds on you've got your own teenagers and you can pick their brains about what's going on in the culture. But you're busy. And if you're a Christian teacher, you're probably involved in a church as well. So all these things uh, sort of uh, meld into it, I think. So I think you need people who, a bit like me, in your school, who can look at these things for you. But it's very hard, I think. Well, you said that teachers don't have time to read absolutely everything. The cynic in me, and I know there are plenty of hard work and dedicated students out there, they're saying, hey, it's not a bad time to not have time to read anything because the students aren't reading anything themselves. Um, if the vehicle of the culture is, is 15 second TikToks, then that might be a little bit easier to actually try and understand the ebb and flow of the culture. If it's, if it's that quick to be, you can just sort of put it in your veins um, in, in a five minute period. Yes, and it, it's a cynical culture because uh, the current generations, uh, their primary hope is that things don't get worse than they are. Now, uh, that's very different to dancing at Woodstock that this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius, right? <laughs> that we're coming into a great time of change. And that change hasn't been good for most young people. They feel insecure. They look at climate change issues. They look at the Russian war. They look at the fact that we've just had lockdown. They look at all these things and say, well, I hope it doesn't get worse. So why not sort of give in to a little bit of uh, irony on TikTok and, and just uh, keep swiping through TikTok videos and laugh? And the way humour works is very different because 15 seconds, uh, into that 15 seconds on TikTok is built a huge philosophical set of assumptions and a very strongly put together way of how humour works, how we view people, uh, there's a whole, you know, 15 seconds worth of, there's a whole iceberg under the tip of that 15 seconds. And most of us don't get why humour has worked the way it does the last, you know, uh, five or so years. The Simpsons is now, we reference them, they're, you know, people don't even think about that anymore. That, that's too long form a narrative, actually. Uh, the, the students that you're that are really going to make a big difference, I think, are those that are able to live at that level but also go deep. And I think identify those students. And look, my daughter does literature and history at, um, at Notre Dame University here in Perth. And uh, is, is, she's a good student. Uh, but she's able to live at the TikTok level as well. And I think if, you, if you've got students that can do both of those things, they're going to be the people who actually are the the creators and the intellectual thinkers of the, of the next generation. But most students are just trying to get by uh, and in a very hostile world. And it's a cancel culture for them as well. They're very nervous. I think students are very nervous that if they something goes wrong in the way they live their life and it's online, they're done. And you see that level of anxiety among, it, among students. Anxiety is the gold medal uh, mental health issue at the moment around the world particularly in the West, and students are there. And that's interesting that you mentioned that too. We talked earlier about how the world is increasingly religious. 
there was a thought at one point when we move on from traditional organized religion, well, we're going to move on from these archaic ideas such as guilt and shame and these sorts of things which they said would only drag people down. It's just a, it's just a weight around your ankles. In fact, the opposite has happened. People are more guilty. People are feeling more shame. What we've actually got rid of is forgiveness, which I think is, is a terrible part of a culture to jettison. And there really is often no way back um, from being cancelled or being socially or uh, even ostracised on social media, which is why people are so scared of it. Yeah, and Douglas Murray talks about that in his book, The Madness of Crowds, that we've got nothing left to us but fiery denunciation. So the safety net of grace has been removed from below us. So we still had sinners and we still have, you know, we still have people and we still have all the um, opprobrium uh, laid on people who get things wrong with no way back. And everyone is very nervous about that. So it's a, it's a hot religious world in one sense. And people used to say to me, uh, why do you want a vengeful God? You know, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. No one wants that. Ain't nobody got time for that. You go, well, it, vengeance will get outsourced somewhere if it's not from God. Because the point of that passage in Scripture is don't seek vengeance, leave room for it. And now that without God, seek vengeance. That's the way you're supposed to operate. And you can shred people in social media if, if you think we're actually moving towards a, a more calm, rational world since religion's gone by the wayside, read Twitter. You know, <laughs> that will disavow you of that notion. And young people are digital natives of that, not just the technology, but the way that technology rewards bad behaviour. And that's the problem. Now, to change tack here a little bit, you said you were doing some work with Christian schools, helping them read the room, helping them understand the culture they're in and behaving appropriately. So keeping this at a 30,000 foot level, how do you think schools do navigate these hot button issues? We see uh, corporations and companies weighing in on these highly contested social issues these days. Schools also, because of their Christian schools, because of their religious framework, uh, having to be part of that societal discussion um, and have that discussion with a discussion partner that is increasingly adopting an alien worldview. So how do schools navigate hot button issues like sexual orientation, gender identity, marriage, etc., cetera, uh, while, in, while remaining an institution, while keeping their place at the table? Well, you know, if I were to be a prophet and say, I wonder how long Christian education has in Australia to run uh, unfettered from high government intervention on these issues, uh, I'd say it's less time than we think. Um, schools don't necessarily do it very well because they end up on the front page of the newspaper because they've done it poorly. Because one of the assumptions for uh, Christian schools has been we can bring our idea into the marketplace in our school and uh, young people will you know, generally, well, we're on your patch, we'll accept that. But they don't. So what I've found is a lot of people have uh, said to me that they feel that the students have the power dynamic in this, in this area that they jump quickly onto teachers who would dare to suggest that the world is not uh, exactly how students think. And that's true all the time. But what you get is that all a student has to do is tell their parent, who's an influential person in, in the culture, who tells the news media, and suddenly you're doorstopped. The biggest risk to schools at the moment is the, the mob pylon when, they, when something happens. And so uh, boards are sort of, you know, looking like goldfish, uh, their mouth wide open when something really goes 
wrong with this area? And But what, what I think we need to do is say, at one level, we need to crank things back and say, there's a whole list of assumptions that we have as Christians that people no longer have, and students don't, certainly don't have. They haven't got a bigger vision of why we think humanity is the way humanity is. They don't have a bigger vision of where sexuality is placed in a vision of human life. Uh, the great irony to me is that all we've been reduced to is consent when it comes to sexuality. And even then, we don't know how to put that together. So young people are, ironically, having less sex than they were 40 years ago, but more porn <laughs> because it's ubiquitous. So they're going, if this thing is that hard uh, to deal with with another human being, why don't I take out the that person and just have it mediated through technology to me? That's no surprise, is it? Because everything else is mediated through technology. Why not our sexuality? At the same time, we're seeing a pornified culture among young boys in schools uh, that is... Uh, tearing apart many of the young women in our schools as well. So there's a huge issue going on underneath. At the same time, teachers who are Christian in schools can offer a better story, a better vision of what humanity looks like. That's the thing that's missing. There's no coherent vision among the next generation of what it means to be human, what it means to engage with the world. Our biggest hope is our satisfied self, and we don't know how to put that together. That's fascinating. So part of our job here as Christian schools is, if I'm hearing you correctly, we navigate through these hot button issues in many ways by also presenting the holistic Christian message. Now, holistic is a bit of a buzzword, but we present the whole gospel, the whole Christ, the whole Bible, and we're actually then creating a vision of the world that is complete and can exist as a realistic alternative to, to this sort of loose leaf worldview that these other people have. It's not necessarily cohesive. It's not full orbed. It's just a grab bag of ideas, perhaps, that these young people have. And you're saying it's actually going to be deeply unsatisfying. The, the relationships are not going to be as deep. Um, the, the friendships are going to be shallower. The answers to the great questions of the world are going to be worse. So you're saying we present all of Christianity, the whole gospel, the whole Bible, the whole Christ, um, as a compelling alternative. And at least then we have some sort of basis when these hot button issues do poke their heads up to tie our answer on that issue back to this compelling framework we've already been building with a student. Yeah, look, this is, this is where it's interesting. I think Christian schools are what I call alternate ethical communities. Uh, Charles Taylor talks about the social imaginary of the culture where... Uh, you know, what are the givens? What are the things we assume can only be? And I think Christian schools are a little outpost of a different imagination. And they, take, they can show something different, that when you walk through the gates of the school, it sort of hits different. Something feels different about this place. And I think that's absolutely critical, that it's giving a holistic framework, and we did use that word. It, it, it makes, it, you've got to make sure that that remains because I think what some of the governments around Australia are doing is trying to say you can only have Christian teachers in your religious education department because there's no such thing as Christian maths. That's a poor argument. What you're trying to form is an alternate ethical community and governments don't like that. Uh, high state intervention, uh, governments that are a statist particularly don't want an alternative mediating institution uh, saying here's a different way of looking at the world. 
Now, when it comes to young kids in those schools, or teenagers even, one of the things I think we've got to do is crank back our level of expectation. You're not going to get them in in year six or seven at high school and get them out in year 12, you know, um, sort of ready to go on the mission field. What you need to see is they're so far back from the Christian framework that by the time they leave school, all they may have thought is, I don't agree with these people who teach me, but they've actually honoured the fact that even if I disagree with, with them, they don't kick me to the curb. Now, at 17 or 18, the world is your oyster. But at 23 or 24, when you've had a few broken relationships and the job career you thought was going to work out for you hasn't, maybe that's the point a young person's going to go, I remember the chaplain at my school, and they were great, and they had some answers to life. Uh, maybe I'll go and explore some of the things they said, because I pulled the lever of life that I was told you can be anything you want to be, and it broke off in my hand. Uh, I think we just got to say, maybe it's five or six years after the education experience that people will start to lean into the things that they were taught. Don't assume that once they leave school, they've forgotten about it, because it's not true. One of my friends used to work at one of those sandstone schools in Sydney, one of those really old setups, a lot of prestige and whatnot. One of the busiest jobs, they had a raft of chaplains. One of the busiest chaplains was actually the old boys chaplain. And exactly what you said was coming true. They're at school, they're with their mates. In many ways, that's not really real life. And they're not taking things seriously. But then they might go back on the farm. All of a sudden, there's a drought. The farm is coming apart in their hands and they're on the horn to the school chaplain. He, he was an incredibly busy man with people who had actually brushed up against the harshness of reality and said, you know what, this, um, this worldview that I had adopted, this social imaginary, all the answers to these questions, it didn't pan out, didn't work out for me at all. I need a better story and I think I know which one to go to. So Christian education in terms of preparing students for the future, it might have a really long fuse. But I like the encouragement you've given us there because at times as an educator, you see someone coming to school, uh, you see them going to church, you know, the family is a Christian family, and they've been really soaking in this Christianity for uh, 14 years by the time they get to the end of it. And you think, have we made much of a dent? What, what is going on here? But I've seen that many times in the life of my friends, even myself, it does bear fruit. It sometimes just takes time. Yeah, and the discipleship program of the world is very attractive, and we need a discipleship program. Everyone's been discipled by something. Everyone's listening to some gospel, and we just have to make ours as compelling as we can. And I think that means that Christian teachers who are a bit older have to get out of the way of thinking that somehow this is just a, an educational uh, expression of youth group. It, it's got to be... We, you've got to be preparing people for something more than, uh, you know, the education experience of chubby bunnies. Uh, you've got to disciple people. The Christian kids coming to your school, I think, are looking for you to be their ally in their faith. And the non-Christian kids in the school are coming and saying, well, i just got to get educated. This is my normal school setting. But... Uh, maybe these people have, you know, I'm going to listen to what they say, and if, it, and if it sounds rubbish, I'm going to kick it to the curb. And I think maybe you've just got to hold our, keep our powder dry a little bit. Keep the weird in there, as we say about Christianity, but also the, how can that person really respect me even though I disagree with them? Because most young people don't live in that world. They're, once you say you disagree with someone on something in the external world, that's it, you're done. 
And I think schools can be places, Christian schools can be places where they let the non-Christian kids be disagreeable and still love them and still look out for them in a way that they will look back on. And, you know, those people that are phoning up the chaplain after five years, there's nothing worse than peaking at high school, right? And it feels like <laughs> those people post high school are realizing life is probably more complex than I considered it to be at school. <laughs> now, I've got one last question for you here, Steve. Uh, and for this question, I'll take you all the way back to the 17th century in America. We're looking at, we're looking at Harvard, okay? The, the Harvard College established by Puritans. And I read their mission statement the other day, back in the 17th century it was formed, and this is what they said. Everyone shall consider as the main end of his life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ, uh, which is eternal life, right? Even their motto at the time was for the glory of Christ, um, or at least a Latin equivalent. Of course, uh, you could also talk about Yale or Princeton or Oxford, and there are many other institutions in Australia um, who have suffered the same fatal flaw, which is mission drift. They've started mm. off as explicitly Christian institutions and then slowly, uh, slowly, little by little, they have drifted from that original conviction. Now, that's one of the things that really scares me going forward. How do we make sure we as Christian schools, and I don't mean just a nominal name only Christianity, I mean Christian schools who wholeheartedly uh, accept the authority of the Bible as the inspired word of God, who seek to worship Christ and, and make disciples of Christ. How do those kinds of Christian schools prevent mission drift in the next 50 years? Yeah, look, uh, history would say that every organisation that starts with a hot zeal in this area ends up with mission drift. And uh, am I going to say that uh, just expect it to happen? And what happens in the end is that people have had enough of mission drift and start a new institution. Uh, you've seen that all the time, that the, the church schools that maybe started off as fairly solid on their Christian framework end up being almost post-Christian. And then the last 40 years, you've seen a huge increase in Australia of Christian schools. But let's not forget that they started off as an extension of the church for Christian children. And now with government funding, you've got maybe 80 to 85% non-Christian kids. One of the things you need is you need a very well theologically educated staff. I, I don't know that we've got that across all of our Christian schools. And if you don't have a coherent Christianity at the centre, what you end up doing is lowest common denominator Christianity. The, the death knell of a Christian school is what Christian Smith talks about, moralistic therapeutic deism. You, you've heard the term. So somehow you've got to keep the gospel at the centre. So that means you've got to employ some people in your school, I'd have to say, that aren't... Uh, aren't earning their wage teaching children, but are earning their wage uh, shaping the cultural framework of thinking of the teachers. You might have to put some money into those kind of people because the busyness of school, the requirements from accreditation, the exam requirements, NAPLAN, etc., means that mission drift is going to happen. And so I think you've seen micro schools being set up recently in Australia and increasing uh, because of online abilities. Uh, where Christians are taking their own children out of Christian schools because they say it's not Christian enough. That should be a warning bell to most Christian schools. The mission drift thing is very hard to push back on the busier you get because your core mission in the end, the, more, the average non-Christian parent sending their kid to your school 
isn't looking for their kid to become a Christian. They're looking for them to be educated in a safe environment, all right, with good pastoral care and better opportunities than the local government school, which, which has got um, sort of barbed wire around the perimeter. Right? You, you, get the, you get the idea. And so suddenly you've got a different clientele and different set of expectations, and you've got a government saying, we want to see these things happen at your school. That's where mission drift kicks in. And unless you can tone that, you can sort of keep sharpening uh, keep sharpening and sharpening the focus of your school, you're going to get mission drift. And I think make sure that a certain number of gatekeeper teachers are leaning hard into further education, theological study, and they're keeping close links with their churches as well. I think that's going to be critical. That's fantastic advice. Thank you very much there, Steve. Now, as we bring this to a close, where can people go to find more of your content? Uh, look, I've been doing a podcast with Undeceptions called DeLorean Philosophy. So if you go to the Undeceptions, that's John Dixon's uh, podcast, go to their website, Undeceptions, you'll find uh, things there. And I also write at stephenmcalpine.com, very humbly named uh, stephenmcalpine.com. And I do a bit of writing in, in other areas as well. So there are, there's material online. My book, Being the Bad Guys, uh, deals with how we think about Christian education in the context of a post-Christian setting as well. And I will be doing some more writing on it. But I'm also working at City Bible Forum uh, as the national communicator. And I'm speaking on some issues uh, around those issues as well uh, for City Bible Forum. And uh, I can be contacted uh, on email if you need to because I am helping schools a couple of days a week in my time to navigate this space. So I'm doing workshops and PD days for schools nationally on uh, how to navigate the culture we're in at the moment and what are the pressures and what are the opportunities. So, you know, feel free to contact me if you need to do that. Absolutely. Well, it's been a real treat talking today with you, Stephen. Thanks for your time. And I look forward to hopefully having you back on sometime in the future. Thanks, Paul. It's been great to chat and uh, most enlivening and uh, enlightening. Thank you.